Hi guys, welcome to another episode of Barcology. We have an amazing guest on our show today and we're really excited to speak to her. So we've got Dr. Melanie Uda. She's a dog trainer and educator. She specializes in neuroscience. So this is probably going to be a bit of a geeky conversation. So mm-hmm. let's get better into dog behavior. We've got loads of dog behavior questions for you. So thank you so much for coming on to our show. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to 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 people all across the world so that's that's exciting to me too yeah definitely yeah okay so do you want to tell us a little bit about your journey into dogs and how you got started and how you got doing what you're doing now yeah of course so um for those who who haven't heard you know of, of canine decoded and and what i'm doing i'm actually not um if you would have asked me 10 years ago i would not have thought that i'm gonna be doing what i'm doing right now um, when I started my my journey, that kind of led me into uh, canine education, um, the new science of behavior. It really came together over the last 10 years as I was doing research mostly. So my background is um, in biology and natural sciences. In Germany, I got my PhD in natural sciences and was all about research in animals um, and diseases actually at the beginning. So immunology. And then I moved to New York City and was doing more and more research and it kind of moved more into the neuroscience, how the brain works, not just in animals, but also humans, um, how it's connected to the gut. So the gut-brain axis was a big topic of my research, how it affects mental disorders in humans, um, anxiety, depression, these things. And that's how I more and more got into the fascinating and very, very complicated world of the brain and neuroscience. Um, and then eventually I was doing some some kind of volunteer work in Thailand and realized there that, you know, oftentimes what happens in terms of research behind the walls um, either never reaches the people who might need it the most, or even if they do, they don't really know how to apply it or what does this all mean, like all this very um, specific, sometimes complicated, super nerdy uh, scientific language that you see in, in research papers. So it's really hard sometimes to translate this into hands-on practical advice. And I learned that more or less the hard way because when I went to to Thailand, the people that I was helping, it was a tuberculosis lab. So I hadn't anything to do with dogs quite yet. Um, so they, I was, was literally just cleaning up data at the end of the day. Uh, I guess that's what they needed the most. But they were also a lot of village dogs hanging out there. So on my way from my little cabin where I was staying to um, the research lab, um, I had to go on my little bicycle and go through this village. It was really beautiful, but there were a bunch of village or street dogs. And every time I was driving by or rolling by with my with my bike, they would not just bark at me, they would actually follow me. And I was um, at the beginning, a little bit of a scary moment because I didn't know what they're gonna do, right? And it was also kind of like an eye-opening moment for me. It was like, this is so weird. Like, I should know. I should know what to, or mm-hmm. at least how to see or analyze the situation. I've been studying animals for so long, right? And I could probably tell you exactly what kind of muscle they were using as they were sprinting after me. But I couldn't really tell you, like, what to do with this and how to communicate if I had to communicate. So I was just, like, getting out of there as fast as possible. And coming back then to the U.S., um, I fell into this deep thought of what am I doing here? <laughs> this is not what I had really envisioned. And there's this huge gap. And ultimately, after being 12 years in, in academia and research, I decided to quit that part. Um, and I'm going to fast forward a little. Uh, 
quit that part and 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 dip into you know corporate world just a tiny little bit to finance more or less my new journey mm -hmm. ended up being um not just dog training but the education and really mixing what do we know in terms of the neuroscience of behavior and how can we translate it into hands-on practical advice to to make just life With, with with dogs easier even more fascinating and especially for rehabbing behaviors a little more efficient yeah definitely and I love your reels on Instagram because I think it makes it yeah it's the best <laughs> yeah it makes it really almost like common sense for like the layman's person you know and even for like us that have studied behavior and so on it's you know the neuroscience is a, mass a massive kind of topic they focus so much on the dog's behavior um but yeah the neuro stuff is kind of missed or you've got to be a much more you know trait yeah stuff, more advanced level to kind of get to that so um, yeah so yeah no definitely so would you kind of say the dog's emotional brain is kind of quite similar to like the human brain in terms of like what goes on oh, it yeah it depends obviously the biggest difference is the size right and the size matters and that and that that um part of the brain that makes us so complex and so sophisticated um is the the, the cortex the prefrontal cortex has so many folds and so many so many layers to it that brain the dogs don't have so or other animals really um and that part is much much smaller so they're not as intelligent as we are but then there are other parts that might not be one-on-one -on -one the same but have a lot of preserved functions the fight or flight you know behavior fear is very preserved um some parts that go into what we call emotions aggression you know like a lot of things are very similar which is yeah you got to be careful what you draw from from certain studies that have been done with humans for example yeah. apply to dogs that can get very tricky especially from human psychology um But certain things that are really preserved, especially when when it comes to the, the neurochemistry of behavior, so dopamine, right, adrenaline, all these things still have very similar functions. And putting this like two puzzle pieces together, what you observe, you know, like actual behaviorism or ethology and what we know has been preserved across species um, over the, the years of evolution. Um, that we can put together and, and say, okay, yeah, that's likely to be very, very similar here. So I actually have another question that's just come up this week quite a few times. So autism and dogs, mm -hmm. is that a thing or is that not a thing? It's interesting. It's, <laughs> yeah, it, you know, the, the, the true answer is I don't know. I think um, the question, what we're trying to say here is it because at the end of the day, we don't know really how um, people suffering from autism really see the world. And we don't really know how dogs see the world. But I think the similarities that we're trying to to draw here is that there are certain sensitivities that we as um, um, like, if you don't suffer from from autism, blend out or filter out. Yeah. And then um, um, autistic kids, for example, right, they're very sensitive to certain stimuli and they kind of yeah. just holds the world inputs a little bit differently and, and I think we can say that's true for dogs too just by the fact that I don't know their nose is a little more sensitive right their their vision is different they don't see as many colors they react more to contrast and movement all these things so I think it's what we can really draw from that and I don't necessarily disagree with that notion but it, I think it's kind of like going into the sensitivity of the inputs and how they're being processed 
that we can say maybe might be a little bit similar to people suffering from autism, whether this is actually one-on-one, I don't know. And I don't think we have a really good way of saying that. Um, mm. But I think behavior is an output to like something that is just not the norm as we see it. Yeah, there's definitely um, a difference between autism and non-autism and maybe a similarity between autism and dogs. Mm-hmm. Okay. No, that's a good question <laughs> yeah because you hear it a lot like I hear yeah. uh-huh one of them kind of myths if you like isn't it of um I think a lot of these things and this is what I mean also coming from human psychology is mm-hmm. we have experience um a lot of us have experienced maybe or have encountered people suffering from autism yeah it's more pronounced with children than with adults who learn to cope a little bit better but that's kind of like the the conclusion on the similarities we can draw right we have a very really hard time abstract thinking in terms of how might a dog see the world but we can yeah. compare someone who sees the world differently and you we as humans then take the next step and say well that might be then also what's happening in the brain very similar and that's that part i don't know it's possible i just don't know but it comes up because this is the closest we can find that we can understand in terms of autism, right, there's been so much research, the closest we can find to make a comparison to allow us to kind of understand maybe dogs. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. And in terms of like, so obviously we see a huge chunk of reactive dogs in our yeah. teaching. So by reactive dogs, no, I know it's a label, um, but it's, uh, <laughs> you know, so what can you kind of explain what kind of happens when a dog sees a trigger that perhaps like they're, anxious of or fearful of yeah so like one of my I have two very sensitive border collies for example and the other day Mm -hmm. my landlord put his boat in my front garden um and he just asked if he could put it there and I was like yeah that's fine and my young female border collie went straight out into the garden had kind of looked at it from a distance and kind of completely ignored it then she finished weeing and then she was like, oh my God, what the hell is that? And her she was like, oh my word. Like she was so freaked out. Can you kind of explain yeah. what is like going on in the dog's brain when something like that happens? And Yeah, so th- there goes a lot into it, but for some things that are new, so the dog has not experienced that before, um, there's always some evaluation happening immediately. And we all heard of the amygdala as the, the center for fear. There's actually a lot more to it. It's the center for a lot of things. A lot of emotions are being determined or what direction it goes in the amygdala. Um, but one big function that the amygdala has is kind of branching off. Is it something that is threatening or not? And it often comes when there's something new, right? Something to the contrast before what was it like before no boat in the yard versus boat in the yard right and the amygdala kind of helps determine what behaviors to attach to this is it a threat is it not a threat am I happy about it am I scared about it and that happens very very quickly and then goes further on and like okay what behavior is now the most appropriate to stay safe right should I um, engage in a conflict barking at it lunging at it or should I remove myself? What are the options I have? But the very, very initial decision is really going into, um, especially if something is new, especially if the dog is more prone to be fearful or more anxious, right? So the threshold is just much, much lower to go in the wrong direction, wrong as in saying this is a threat, even though it shouldn't. And 
um, like I said in the beginning, that often happens with something new. So contrast is a big thing. Um, you know, there's no dog reacting as in 10 dogs walk by and they're just fine. And then there's one dog who lunges at my dog, as an example. That's a contrast to all the other dogs right before. So now that the amygdala is like, hey, we have to reevaluate this. And either it happens, um, there, there are then two things that can happen. It's either a very emotional experience, either in a good or a bad way. Let's say a bad way, the dog really is threatening. Maybe it almost got bitten or got lunged or got you know charged by an off-leash dog, whatever it is. Then it goes into, oh man, that was really bad. You know, I have to remember that. So when the dog then sees another dog, the next time the amygdala will do the same thing, will get activated, will potentially activate the fight or flight. If nothing ever happens, so let's say you have a puppy and you're actually socializing in the right way, habituating to new inputs, nothing ever happens, then this initial, mm, is this a threat or not, kind of decision falls away. It will not get so activated anymore. It gets into the habituation what we see desensitization right and the dog will be like there's no reason to react i've seen this so many times nothing bad will happen here mm -hmm. so that's that's ideal right that's what we want for our dogs for a lot of things yeah. whenever there is a new input something dog has never seen before you can really see differences in personalities here so mm -hmm. some dogs again mm -hmm don't care at all even if it's new right they just have generalized it and their threshold is very low and other dogs will always first at least react my dog you see both of mine in the background so my black german shepherd couldn't care less probably doesn't even recognize that there's something new and then my malinois she understands that any given second something new can happen <laughs> and she is ready all the time yeah, yeah so there will always be an initial bark but you will recover very quickly. But first, it's like react first, think later, kind of thing, you know. Yeah, and yeah, then we'll yeah. be like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And do you find genetics play like a massive role in like how dogs and how quickly they react? Yeah. So genetics, in terms of um, the overall temperament, on average, sure. Mm. But then also personality, right? So there, there are other dogs that are they're shepherds. Like they're not like my my black shepherd. Um, that would also react i think there's yeah. a, it's i think it kind of gives you the direction that you can expect based on the breed right border collies mm. Aussies, i would always assume that's probably more high strung <laughs> nervous right um and then you can see where they actually fall um if i have mm. what's a good example um if i have actually i don't know a good example <laughs> i always work with like these high strung anxious dogs and a labrador um, if you have that i probably assume they don't really care as much right yeah. um but again might also be i've seen plenty of reactive really high strung um uh, uh golden retrievers so genetics can yeah also yeah and that also just goes to show like how the important how important management is when you first start working on something because yeah. I'll sit the same thing over and over, you know, reacting, feeling those things over and over, and it's just going to sort of like escalate probably. So the next question goes to what should you do if your dog has sort of seen that stretch and they're over threshold or they're really not feeling good? So how do you handle that? We know. So this is a real as well that you had where people teach the dogs to sit, right? <laughs> so that's what you yeah. should not do. But what should you do? <laughs> yeah, I, I think... 
you know, yeah, well, there are two things. First, you really want to, especially at the beginning when you just got a dog and you get to know the dog and learn what is the dog focused on, interested in, hung up on, right? What is the dog's obsession? Is it a squirrel? Is it a little uh, very of, of other dogs? You know, you want to, oftentimes what we think is like, well, we just let the dog observe to see that nothing bad happens, right? That's the first mistake. Don't let the dog observe it. Don't let the dog make up his or her own mind about it, right? Help this process from the very beginning. Um, anything that takes for the dog, you can see the emotional change. It's like, oh, there's some curiosity at the beginning and then they start focusing on too long and then something shifts. And then either you have the reactivity kicking in or, you know, trying to avoid the situation because now, oh shit, I, sorry, <laughs> we can't no, cut no, that no, up. That you don't want that the dog then realizes, oh, I'm not comfortable. So I might want to run away. You don't want to have any of this, right? So you want to intervene first and, in that moment, you can just assume arousal levels are up. Adrenaline has been released. What is adrenaline? Adrenaline is behavior. It's movement. Your dog has an urge to do something, right? So now putting the dog in any kind of stationary behavior, because that's what we think we would want to do, which is also not true. If you're really, really mm. excited about it, you're not going to calm down easily either, right? You're probably pacing. Um and the dog wants to do that too. So becoming comfortable with that state of mind in your dog is the most important skill you can have. And then learn to navigate it though, right? So there's a difference between a dog out of control being excited and the dog being excited, but you have a lot of control over the dog's movement and keep catching your dog's attention. And so that's a very, very nice outlet for the dog while the dog is focused on you because most likely you are someone who is giving the dog a lot of positive experiences, not just on the walk, but generally you are the star for your dog, right? You are the center of positivity, if you will, ideally. And then catching the focus, you know, your dog has much more chances of, of learning that everything around it is not a threat because guess what? I just had a lot of fun with mom, even if it was just 10 seconds. And so you navigate that kind of potential, the risk of making up the wrong associations by navigating it from the very beginning and having really, really happy moments with your dog that involve movement, move with your dog, move backwards, move to the side, not like a clown or like a mosquito. You want to be very still, <laughs> it's a skill you need to learn because you also have to hold the leash at the mm -hmm. same time. Yeah, but yeah moving in the way that your dog can move with you understand it and that way capture your dog's attention your dog still knows there's a trigger around your dog still understands there's a dog across the street mm -hmm. but now you kind of help your dog understand oh and i had fun at the same time well maybe it's not as bad as i thought it would be Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so could that also be you know like bringing out a tug toy afterwards for a little bit of chase or something or chasing a, a treat that you sort of threw on the floor yeah um everything that again involves movement if the dog is mm -hmm. willing to play play is the best way to do it yeah especially if the dog likes tugging um there have been so many studies not necessarily with dogs but with other animals that they like the the outcome of some sort of interactive engagement as the best outlet for some sort of frustration. Now this can go, we often heard here of like redirected aggression, right? Yeah. It happens when the dog is 
on a leash and maybe reacting at something else, but is not allowed to fully involve or get involved in that reactivity and then lashes out at the dog next to it or at the handler, right? So the dog chooses his or her outlet. So much, much better to provide it in a playful way. So tugging can be really, really good for that. A lot of dogs don't necessarily like to play outside. They don't feel yeah. as comfortable. They're not used to it. You can teach it to a certain extent, but it's not always going to happen that way. So you can use food chase as well. You can let the dog chase the food. Um, I'm not a big fan of doing sniffing, searching kind of moments in these kind of situations, just because you have very little control over when the dog is going to find the treat. When is the dog looking up again? You know, yeah. it's more like a chase if the dog is... If the treat is big enough and the surface is clean enough, you know, you can chase food. I do this all the time. Um, I let my dog like catch it out of the air, holding my hands differently. So these kind of things, even like going through your legs and doing some sort of like tricks or whatever the dog can invest in really, really easily is works. Like you can, the, the endless opportunities, right? You can get so creative, just mm -hmm. be in tune with your dog and um, have your dog enjoy that moment. And then you will have, you have much better chance of setting it up for success mm. yeah actually, and actually sorry actually we just have too many questions <laughs> I love it. Um, <laughs> um this is a good example actually just because you mentioned that so today I also took my parents dog to the vet because she had like a dermatitis sort of finicky like uh, by her lips so we just wanted to find out what is it it's not normal for her and what really helped her was doing all the chasing, all the tricks, all the things like that in the in the vet's office, which I think is also different to a lot of how people do cooperative care always. So yeah, that just made me think about the adrenaline release because she knows the vet is not the super best place for her, right? She's had some bad experiences. But when we were doing tricks, she was chasing her treats every now and then I would, you know, toss the ball as well and, you know, make it fun because she's also super obsessed with her ball being a terrier um so yeah she was super happy just a practical example for people listening to <laughs> yeah yeah 100 yeah and also well like I also thought of an example of like my male border collie when he was adolescent over lockdown he became very reactive so we had a very strict lockdown here in South Africa we weren't allowed out yeah. for like three months and he came out just like oh my god this place like he just wanted he was just terrified and overwhelmed by everything mm -hmm. and one of the things I used to do because he's not massively into food, like tug for him is way more important for him, especially when outside. And I would get him, you know, to look at a trigger at a distance and then I'd ask him for a spin or like something that he really loved to do. And then he'd have a good tug game. And I found mm -hmm. he coped so much better after literally like two or three repetitions of that compared to if I had used food, which is traditionally used for things like the look at that game, for example, he would take much longer or he wouldn't find it as like satisfying, I suppose, for his, mm -hmm. his body. So yeah, that's really interesting what you say. Um, definitely. And also I was going to ask you about the scatter feeding as well, because obviously a lot of <laughs> trainers and a lot of advice is to get the dog's nose down and to do calming mm -hmm. stuff with them and to try mm -hmm. and lower their arousal levels um, and stuff. And so, yeah, so would you prefer the movement over, even if it's like a huge food scatter and it's really easy for them to find, you'd prefer the movement yeah, I, I see a scattering more of like an emergency thing, right? If you really don't have a chance of engaging with your dog in any other way, but you give up a lot of control, right? 
um, for one, and two, often then they're so focused on finding that they really sometimes completely fade out everything else. And the learning kind of stops because all the energy goes into this. Eventually it might be calming, right? And I just don't see how a dog, you know, in, in my experience, but also just thinking through this, how a dog then associates um, the scattered food with no threatening if there's no really engaging in that environment in that sense, because the dog is so focused on um, the ground, right? The other problem also is that if you do this a lot of times, many, many times on the walk, the dog will then have more and more and more the nose down, even without the food being scattered, just because of there might be something here, because in the past, there's always been something here. Um, they don't necessarily say, oh, I, I just have to wait until my owner, my hander scatters the food. They will look for it preemptively. And then you have, again, no control. And a dog that is constantly with the nose on the ground is not a fun dog to walk in the first place. And for other dogs that also become um, a little bit um, skeptical or a little uh, insecure around food, you know, that are really, really food motivated, then you also risk that the dog is actually becoming more vigilant. Because now the dog is not just only um, reactive to other dogs. Now the dog also is like, I cannot have any dog nearby because this is my ground where I find my food. Now the dog is even more reacting if there is another dog, right? So there are a lot of things that go into it. And again, I don't, I think the best thing you always can do is have your dog being controlled under your engagement and the dog is on you. Because if you have your dog's focus, you have so much more. You can move across the street, you can move into a side walk, you can, you can stay where you are, you can move, right? Rather than actually giving that up. Mm -hmm. Um Obviously, nose work, detection, all these things are fantastic exercises and they have their place in training, in enrichment, right? Yeah. It's just in that particular inc incidence, I wouldn't use it. Okay, that's really interesting. And in terms of like trigger stacking, so I've always been taught when I did my behavior course many, many years ago, I was taught that, um, you know, when a dog sees a trigger and they react, it kind of stays in their body for like 72 hours. And so what do you think about that? And um, does it depend obviously on what you do with the dog afterwards as to how long it does stay in the dog's body? And yeah, that's... um. That's a good question. And the trigger stacking is, is a very interesting one for me. So um let's just say let's just say the first incidence was out of fear. Like actually the dog was really scared, right? So cortisol is up, obviously adrenaline is up. And one one function of fear is to stay longer in the body because it prevents the dog from getting in the same situation again, right? So if you had a really traumatic experience probably don't sleep well the next nights right and you kind of go back mentally to that to that situation and replay and the reason for that is again to not go there and just put yourself in the in the threatening situation again now the dogs i don't know what they dream about but the dogs don't necessarily replay that situation but their body response is still kind of active right and I don't know about 72 hours, it could be 48, it could be weeks. Some dogs are still hypervigilant even a week or two weeks after they have been attacked by another dog, for example. It's definitely happening. And what that really means, it makes the dog a little bit more irritable 
to new triggers because now the dog is like, I got to react faster, right? Because I'm still somehow in that situation. And if it's involving aggression in one way or another, whether it is most driven by fear or it's proactive aggression and was a very intense experience, you also know that the neurons, the areas in the brain that ultimately trigger aggressive behavior, so the actual behavior you see, uh, lunging, barking, biting, if if it happens, um, these neurons, they can stay active even though the trigger is not there anymore. Now, this is not going to be weeks, but maybe on the same walk. So that's the immediate trigger stacking that you see. Yeah, so the yeah. dog has been in, maybe, maybe it was yeah. even out of excitement, but has been, um, had some conflict with another dog on the leash. They almost got in the fight. And then the dog mm-hmm. leaves around the corner the dog might seem okay you know be back to normal but what happened the brain the aggression brain area still firing it's still active and as soon as another dog is in sight the dog will become potentially reactive again and then the owner is like i don't understand normally he would never Mm. reacted to this kind of dog that far away but it's really you know the activation was still ongoing and it made the dog a little bit more um reactive or lower the threshold Mm -hmm. and then would you say like in terms of say like you know if the dog has had a a walk where they have reacted towards other dogs for example and it has got worse over the course of the day what can owners do like when they get home to is there anything that you would recommend to kind of help the dog recover quicker um yeah there's not no secret to it just take it easy you know have no just lower your expectations on everything right and don't put the dog into a situation where the dog might fail again because then you add the emotional load of oh i did something wrong to it too right so i would say rest you know not a long walk not even not even training you know when 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 my dog and I we had a be whatever emotion exciting or negative experience we don't really do anything for the rest of the day other than just goofing around and you know couch time maybe so I would just lower the expectations often what we humans do is you say okay this went wrong I gotta go back to it and work on it yes yes especially sometimes trainers in particular, because we're very eager <laughs> to yeah. solve the problem. Yeah. Yeah. Because we continue to think about it. It's like, what went wrong? Let me try this, right? Or um, out of fear from like the hand is like, I can't believe this happened. I have to test it again and see if, it, if it's still that bad, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely no go. Let's not do this at all because obviously for the dog, it's just setting the dog up for failure. Um, it's just not how recovery works, right? So we have to let go and literally mentally let go too as, as the handler too. Yeah, I find because I'm originally from the UK and there it's there's a big thick culture of like, you know, you must walk your dog. And, you know, even if your dog is really scared, you must take them out for a walk and stuff. And so when I actually say to clients, if they are over threshold and I just say, just leave them be for a couple of days, just don't walk them. They're like, oh my God, really? Am I allowed to do that? And they think it's really like a bad thing. And <laughs> and it's always amazing the results afterwards. You know, they they notice yeah. that it's so much calmer. But I think there's a massive culture like in England because obviously our houses yeah. are smaller. There's a lot less space than here in South Africa. Um, and so, yeah, people, there's that real guilt, I think, as well with people that if they don't walk their dogs and they're being a bad dog owner. And 
Right. True. Yeah. <laughs> it happens here too. Here in Atlanta, it's like in the city, right? Then like they often you don't have a choice. You have to walk your dog to get this is the only time the dog gets exercises in. But you know, it's not just the walk, it's like how the walk goes, the yeah. quality of the walk yeah. um that makes a big difference. But then in the more suburban areas the dogs are really just having their yards and they never get to walk <laughs> and, then, and then if they ever have to walk they they crumble like a cookie even though it might be a super big you know seemingly confident dog because they're just not used to it so finding the like with everything else finding the balance is important and knowing what you do and how you can sweeten the deal even if it's a scary walk yeah 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 absolutely. yeah so so my next question a little bit off topic to walks now but um, we always ask about adolescence because uh, I had a very <laughs> challenging <laughs> experience with my adolescent border collie and he's, he's just turned three actually. So we, are, we have found each other very nicely now. <laughs> um, but before that, <laughs> it was very challenging. And I used to actually go to classes with Chantal as well. And yeah, you can ask her. So it's, it's night and day, Chantal. I promise you're saying much better. Oh, I know, I believe you. <laughs> my boy also went through that phase, don't worry. Um, but, but basically, what, what is going on with the dog when they hit adolescence? <laughs> Oh, you're very <laughs> questions. Uh, a lot, everything, really. That's <laughs> everything's gone on. Um, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like when the dog, for one, goes through a lot of hormonal challenges, right? So, like finding, um, who the dog is, and I wouldn't say consciousness because we don't know whether dogs are yeah. really conscious of themselves. Um, but they're social animals, and they're driven by understanding what are the dynamics within the pack, the family that they live in, right? It's not the classic alpha, beta, gamma, whatever, you know, yeah. we believed for so long it to be. And even within wolves, it might actually much more be much more fluent, um, fluid. But the dog has a desire to understand what's going on in any given dis uh, situation. And that usually happens during adolescence because you know, despite a fall, that's when the dog qualifies to take on certain roles that a puppy wouldn't. And here, this is just classic behaviorism, right? Testing, what are my limits? It's just probably so universal in, in any in any way. And that's very, it's very important for the dog to understand what the limits are, right? But you don't understand your limits unless you test them in a way, because we, we can't otherwise just give, here's the book of my household and you have to obey by these rules, right? The dog is learning it. And um, at the same time, it's not just the behavior limits, but also physically, right? The dog is maturing to the point is like, now I have all these muscles. And you, you see this all the time. Out of the sudden, the dogs realize, oh, I can actually really run fast, you know? And then they they dart out of the door and it's like, oh, this is so much fun. Or I actually can almost catch the squirrel. And that's just coming with the awareness of environment becoming more important than the, the immediate input and the help of the owner because puppies obviously are super helpless right they they need constant input and it's like they just follow you now i have a lot of owners like i don't need to work on the recall <laughs> my dog comes my puppy comes as soon as i just finish saying the name right it's like yes wait until the right, famous wait, until <laughs> wait until adolescence kicks in because yeah. then you are not as important anymore it's just normal yeah. mother nature kind of saying you gotta yeah. uh, explore your environment too and um, everything comes in, right? And I would have to say it also becomes challenging because 
we don't prepare for these situations. We just go with the flow and don't put in certain rules and don't put in certain communications when the dog is still a puppy because we just, if you have a puppy that is enjoyable, my puppy was not enjoyable from the very beginning. It's like a terrorist. <laughs> uh, but uh, then out of a sudden, new rules have to kick in, right? So you struggle now communicating this. The dog is like, wait a second, we've never talked about this before. Why would I have to wait now at the door now that I'm 80 pounds, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, all these things come together. So there's a lot of miscommunication, conflict, exploration, testing limits um, that all fall in this in this time. And you either come out better as a team <laughs> or... <laughs> Or you're going to struggle for a little bit longer because you don't get a hang of it. But that's ultimately the 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 role for or the, the goal for the dog is understanding what's my life look like, putting everything in context, you know, any kind of every kind of engagement, every kind of interaction with you, with family, with friends, with strangers, with other dogs, with the environment. Everything is now being shaped and put into context. And that's the map that the dog is then going to live by as an adult mm -hmm. and in terms of like those that do have adolescent dogs obviously like that's where you get the start of a lot of behavior problems um yeah. what kind of advice would you give to you know, because you hear a lot of people say you know just manage it or try and prevent them from rehearsing the behavior because it is just a phase and you know you and then you know you don't want to kind of put almost too much emphasis on the behavior issue as such what are your thoughts on it yeah you know obviously get help <laughs> first <laughs> um and I think one of the biggest thing is because everything seems to come together is what you just said the overemphasis on the problematic behaviors so obviously you know you want to prevent the rehearsal of problematic behaviors but you want to this is not just adolescence this is yeah the moment you get a dog this is like one of the management skills you have to have yeah. but still kind of stay consistent with the basics you know that you just remember what do you want your dog to be like given your dog can actually um fulfill these these expectations in terms of the dog's personality but stick to the basics be consistent and, and again, still focus on the good part too, right? Because if the dog doesn't have an alternative to engage in or to behave by, then the dog will more likely behave the way you don't want it. So we often switch from, hey, I'm a puppy and I have so much fun with my puppy, doing all these things, and all the behaviors change and problems show up. And all we do is, no, stop it, don't do it, leave it, no, no, right? So we become different people, different owners, rather than, hey, don't do this. But remember, we still have so much fun doing that as well. And there's always these two parts, right? And only focusing on stop, 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 stop. And the dog doesn't know, well, what else do you want me to do? And honing your skills there, these two parts will ultimately, they always work together. And that's, we have to focus on it. We can't just go into this hateful moment of, I don't want to, what did I do? Why do I have this crazy dog at home? He keeps barking out the window. And no matter how many quiet commands I throw at him, keeps barking. It's like, well, what else do you want your dog to do? Oh, you want to engage with you? Well, is this a win-win situation? Does your dog actually like engaging with you? If not, well, that's what you need to focus on. 
Mm, no definitely and I think the whole thing about management is so important because it's I say this to clients all the time you know you'd never leave a toddler unsupervised to do something that you don't want them to do you know and whereas people have such high expectations of dogs especially puppies and adolescents and it's really mind-blowing actually how humans just expect dogs to just be perfect in every situation Mm -hmm. and yeah yeah yeah, humans are also so interesting. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, but okay, so my next question it was on social media. Actually, I think last week or the week before, time goes so quickly. But um, there was something about relaxation protocol and it being good for dogs, being bad for dogs. So how how do you teach a high energy dog to relax? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, you got to be very, very patient with that. And like your expectations, if you think you have low expectations, they got to be even lower <laughs> than, than that. Because it's for for high energy dogs, it's very difficult. It's a skill, it's a mindset, right? And high energy dogs who need a lot of input um, and, and want and seek out a lot of input in terms of what do we do next? What do we do next, right? They have to learn to be or sit with themselves without any input. And that's very, very difficult. That's very difficult for dogs. And there's a lot of frustration involved. And one of the things that I always say is it's not linear. In terms of teaching a dog to relax and stay relaxed, it's not a linear process because the dog is most likely not enjoying it at the beginning, right? (laughs) So you start out with like, 10 seconds I literally started out with 10 seconds where I was in a training session with my dog you know and she's enjoying it or at least there's a lot of activity happening and then she just had to be next to me without any input I may have said to put her in the sit but even that I don't I don't expect her to stay in the sit Mm -hmm. so I probably wouldn't say it I just need her to be next to me for 10 seconds I don't look at her I don't talk at her just look somewhere else maybe look at my phone and that was already difficult for her she's like what are we doing next I can't I have to pace give me something to do right so learning that is very hard and then they realize oh I can actually can just hang out and nothing bad is going to happen so you start very very little and then you build up duration but then you go back to very very little because one of the big things for dogs that are hard that really don't want to commit to relaxation is oh every time we do this now they already expect oh now I have to stay on this bed for 30 minutes so they already prepare themselves to get off earlier (laughs) basically Mm -hmm. so you have to then go back to five minutes at the time right um so that's really number one it's not linear you start as little as you can and two seconds, five seconds, if you can get a dog to just hang out for five seconds within the training session, you got to celebrate that as a win too, as ridiculous as it sounds. But, you know, that can be a win. And then the other thing is um, for dogs that have high energy and need a lot of input and have a hard time to relax, you have to put, um, you have to compartmentalize your environments. Meaning from the very beginning, you have to decide this is the room that my the crate is in. This is the living room and I will never want my dog to have high activity play in the living room. Then you should never have high activity play in the living room. 
go outside, go in a different room so that you kind of condition the dog that the environment itself can be already soothing or calming. And also always interrupt if the dog out of the sudden has zoomies. It sounds really hard um, and it is hard and there will be ups and downs where it's just you can't help it. It's the same with my dogs. She, the first thing in the morning, she will just have her zoomies no matter where she is. And I will never be able to really prevent it. Um, but throughout the day, she just does not have high activity in the living room, right, when she is there. So compartmentalizing um, the environments and understanding it's not a linear process. And then the classic, you know, lace bed, crate, all these things that you that you guys probably teach, that will all go in there. Mm. And I suppose as well, you have to make sure that the dog's needs are actually being met as well. Yeah you know before you you can't just expect a dog yeah. to do a relaxation protocol when they haven't had like their run or you know my, my border collies they need to run like daily it's just yeah and they get so much joy and so much happiness from it that um yeah I think the problem is a lot of people think okay I'm just going to teach my dog to lie down on a mat and build up the time and then it must just stay there until I tell it to <laughs> you know tell them to and I think, yeah, that can be difficult. Like you say, it's non-linear. You know, there's so many other aspects to it as well. Yeah, yeah you know, but I think there's something to for a dog to learn that, you know, even though, and I wouldn't do this from the beginning, that's probably the biggest part, but um, even though you haven't had your run today, you still got to have to know, be quiet for mm-hmm. a day because you know, there will be bad days happening. Yeah. But that I just say for everything, right? So um, now today the walk is a little shorter. Now we're not going to go on the run. Now you have dinner at a different time, right? It's just like mixing up sometimes the routines just so the dog learns that it's not going to be always like this. And the dog learns to work through that kind of stressful change mm-hmm. is important. But overall, yeah, if you have an energetic dog, first thing just can't be sit still all the time right and there there are moments where you can tell the dog is just super antsy and yeah uh, there is no point now adding so much conflict to being still or being relaxed versus hey you had your run today now you're just being really annoying and I'm going to help you work through this by teaching you how to relax right there's like a slight difference so you got to know your dog and and got to know where the dog is coming from Mm. yeah no doubt Okay, so my next question, since you mentioned that you did a lot, it's the gut-brain link. Can you just summarize it very briefly? <laughs> but just because that's also yeah. a hot topic right now. Yeah, it's it's very interesting. And I think there's more and more in dogs happening too in terms of research. So some people say the gut is the first brain, you know, and, and usually... Uh, not necessarily nutritionists, but people who do research um, immunology and, and nutrition and this kind of stuff. They say the gut is the first brain. Obviously, neuroscientists say no. So we settle on the gut-brain axis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in so many ways, they are being connected. Um, nerve cells, right? Neurons, peripheral neurons, peripheral um, nervous system is very much connected to the gut. And a lot of information comes from the gut to the brain and vice versa. Um, and this is super, super important for keeping really, really important uh, functions alive. And one of the very, what I found very, very interesting is, and this applies to to all, um, to dogs and as well as animals, is you don't need 
um, to eat the food in order to taste it because the gut itself can taste whether dog, uh, whether food is salty or sweet. It doesn't have to go through the mouth and how they tested it is they injected the food right into the gut. And that's just so that because it's so important that the gut is able to communicate to the brain, hey, we're eating something really tasty, we need more of it. So the brain can send the signals to say eat more of it or we're eating something potentially toxic and we can't just rely on tasting it in our in our mouth, right? So and 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 um on top of this for mental disorders right certain foods and we know that there has been even research on aggression and what kind of food you know too much protein and all that it's very 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 difficult to to conduct a good research study on on actual nutritions and actual um food intakes but even that you know can influence your mood um can influence how you navigate through stress, what you eat. So that that itself, and I think um, the pet industry isn't necessarily the most advanced in terms of creating the healthiest food that is affordable. Um, but I think there's more and more research done that will support potentially, you know, anxiety. I mean, you know, too much sugar makes us anxious, of course. Yeah. Too much carbs and, and bad food makes dogs anxious too. Mm-hmm. And what do you, what what do you personally think about the whole protein thing in terms of like um because again that was something years ago that um mm-hmm. I haven't heard it like so much recently as advice but yeah only years ago it was um it was advised um yeah to reduce the level of protein in the dog's diet and things yeah I don't for me it's you know I take it in as an information um I don't really. For one, I don't think there's actually so much that that owners can do. So if you have enough, if your finances, you can if you can put into your budget to to feed certain raw food, which is then usually said it's too much protein, right? I think there are too many benefits that outweigh the potential risk yeah. that hasn't really been proven in any way, shape, or form. Um, people who can't afford it and have to stick with kibbles, they're not gonna change whatever this kind of research says right it's in my experience yeah. it's very hard to change because you usually mostly dependent on what you can afford i think what makes much more sense to consider is really supplements that can help right um and not gonna make a big difference as in like black and white changes in behavior but it can support certain things probiotics can support if the dog is on medication a lot there are other supplements that can support potentially calming down in stressful situations and that I think is a much more interesting and much more feasible way of thinking about how to change the diet to influence behavior yeah yeah and in terms of like sorry can I ask one more question I'm just really conscious of your time (laughs) (laughs) I saw a reel you posted the other day on like behavior medication um and things and what are your thoughts on using it because I know you said it's overused quite a lot and I specialize in separation anxiety and one of the things when you're learning separation anxiety is they do like you to get the dogs on meds like sooner (laughs) rather than later um I just wondered what are your thoughts on it uh it depends I think you know it all relies on the proper diagnosis and I think that's why I'm saying it's over prescribed because the diagnosis is in my eyes not often proper um or evaluated enough or thought through so i just had um i'm currently still training a 12 weeks three months old puppy with high a lot of energy it's a hunting dog a lot of energy went to the vet obviously like no dog 
I would say, well, actually my dog enjoys going to the vet because he enjoys <laughs> meeting new people. Um, but generally the vet is almost always a stressful experience and it's a puppy, right? And it's a happy-go-lucky puppy. So it was really hyper and the vet really said you should talk to a behaviorist for medication. It's a three-month-old puppy. Oh, really? That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. And, and you know, the evaluation for generalized anxiety, not necessarily separation anxiety, but generalized yes. anxiety is very thorough it has to there's so many requirements that go into it but no one really does that because you go to a vet behaviorist to get some solution there and you paid a lot of money for one consultation you're probably not going out or going home with like a three months behavior plan right yeah. and we have to consider i'm not saying all vet behaviorists are bad in that sense but you know their power is to give immediate relief yeah. potentially mm. now the problem then the second problem is um, you might see relief because you just lower the arousal level of a dog, but you kind of mm. create an imbalance because now the dog is not struggling anymore with being overreactive or overaroused. But it doesn't mean that the dog isn't necessarily feeling something towards the trigger. Now you're creating a different imbalance of being under aroused that might not be appropriate for the dog's personality, right? And I don't know what the dog feels, but I cannot imagine that this is a good homeostatic feeling for the dog either. You just don't see the yeah. arousal anymore. And then the parents are, oh, it's working, right? Mm. And we forget about yeah. having to put in the time and the effort for training to potentially fade out the medication. Mm. If that all was yeah. differently set up, I would say, you know, if this helps you to get over the hump to start your rehab, we you know mm. that, okay. A lot of these medications are more or less safe mm -hmm. and short-term probably don't do much to long-term effects health-wise, but just that's not the case. I see dogs that are on years forever on medication, and I'm pretty sure that has an impact on health too. Yeah, definitely. I think people are always looking for that elusive quick fix. Yeah. Magic wand. Yeah. We just want to mm -hmm. take a pill for everything and everything will be resolved and it's the no. same with our dogs. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah, no. Okay, last question to me, let's end on a good note, is what are three things that you could do that's going to make your dog happy? That, like the brain, what's going to make them happy? <laughs> oh, good question. <laughs> um, okay, so I would say play is number one. Really okay. hone into the play style of your dog. Um, that has so many benefits that we don't can even imagine how many benefits that have. Yeah. We know that because lack of play makes the dog more anxious, more overreactive, right? But it has to be the right play, meaning not the play that we hope the dog is going to play because a lot of dogs don't like to fetch. So don't play fetch. <laughs> keep trying different things, keep trying different toys, but really hone into the play style of your dog. That's number one. It's probably the most important one. The second one is create social exclusion. You know, even if you have a social dog that you can bring anywhere, it's not healthy. The dog has to be alone at times. And if the dog doesn't like to be alone, even more important that the dog learns to be alone at times from you, exclude from you, exclude from others. Short term, right? Could be a couple hours a day because that will make the dog be even happier for the interaction with you or 
the play with you for the adventures you do with your dog, right? So that's the second. And the third one, uh, I think what will make the dog happy indirectly is if you as the handler, the owner, enjoy the journey of training and don't see training as a start and short-term kind of thing. I trained to sit, I trained to down, I trained to stay, and now I don't need to interact in the mental mental um, exercises, you know, obedience, all these things for me fall into mental exercises. Don't need to do this with a dog anymore who knows all the commands. I think um, enjoying seeing that as like the dog always wants to learn something new and finding new ways to do that will ultimately really fulfill all the needs, not just the, obviously the physical needs, but you can get a lot of physical needs done with play. Could be very if you include fetch, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but seeing that as like it will keep the brain healthy because the brain will continue to learn and will continue to enjoy this, and together will ultimately help to to age healthier. Yeah, that's what is okay, what awesome. Three months? yeah (laughs) (laughs) oh no that's been great thank you so much we've loved having you on I've still got like loads more questions so we're just gonna have to get you on again yeah (laughs) Yeah, I think so (laughs) (laughs) okay sorry go ahead (laughs) I was gonna say an hour always flies by so I know it goes so quickly absolutely okay so if people want to find out more about you where can they find Mm. you um obviously instagram i'm mostly active on instagram so canine decoded there but also canine because a lot of things um more like updates in terms of what i do is happening there um so these are the main but if you find me on instagram you find my website and if you find me on my website you find me on instagram so canine is the, the way to go probably okay perfect and we'll make sure we put that in the show notes but yeah. thank you so so much we've loved talking loved to you. it yeah obviously <laughs> my pleasure and happy to come back anytime thank you awesome yeah awesome thank you guys thank you thanks